0: Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station.
1: Six foot six above sea level, I grab the mic
0: because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency, radio modulation,
1: the big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before.
0: And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and it's good to be back in the studio in my old chair. Our guest today is a scholar, activist, and historian of anti-racist social movements, Christina Heatherton. Among many other things, Dr. Heatherton is a professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. She's the co-editor, along with her partner and co-conspirator Jordan T. Camp, of *Policing the Planet: Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter*, published by Verso Press in 2016. Sister Heatherton is joining us to discuss her recently released Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, a remarkable work described by the famed historian Robin D.G. Kelly as an example of what happens when poets write history, or more precisely, when revolutionary poets write histories of revolution. Christina Heatherton, welcome to W.O.R.T.,
2: Alan, it's a delight to be here. Thank you.
0: I want to make a qualification up front to you and to our listeners. A a mere 50 or so minutes can in no way do justice to what you have created between the covers of your book. To do so, we'd have to do a series of hour-long programs, each one dealing with a specific chapter. But let's start at the top. Christina, please give our listeners some brief sense of what RISE is about. Start perhaps with the Mexican Revolution and the context in which it came about.
2: Sure. Well, a rise of. Uh... Let me say first of all, I'll happily take up your offer to do several hours on every chapter from W O R T. But uh, to to just kick us off, arises a book about uh, global radicalism in the era of the Mexican Revolution. So sometimes we forget that the first major social revolution of the 20th century happened in Mexico. And so the book tries to trace uh, history from below of internationalism by thinking about what I call convergent spaces. So these are different sites where different radical traditions were compressed together and produced new articulations of struggle. I think of a range of different convergent spaces from federal penitentiaries, art collectives, Strikes of farm workers. And I'm really interested in the ways in which people from different parts of the world, different cultures, different radical traditions were forced, as we're always to, to talk with each other, to learn with each other, to organize with each other, and how they subsequently produced new articulations of internationalism. So I think there's a different story about internationalism to be told if we think about the traditions that were related to the Mexican Revolution in the early 20th century. And that, in a nutshell, is what I try to tell.
0: You know, Christina Heatherton. in reading your book, I learned so much. I thought I knew about the Mexican Revolution. I, I thought I knew at least some minor threads and, and so on, which is, <laughs> came came true. That is, I don't know very much at all. But what blew my mind a little bit, and I I never had looked into it before, was the radical nature of that revolution, epitomized, of course, in the revolutionary constitution of 1917. Talk about that for a moment for our listeners to get a sense of how radical this revolution was.
2: Absolutely. Well, just for your listeners, because I I was just reminded by some students today, you know, how starved uh, people are in this country just for basic uh, Mexican history and for basic knowledge of the Mexican Revolution. So to make a very long story short, the Mexican Revolution breaks out in 1910. Uh, and there are different fractions of society that conspire in different ways to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who's uh, led Mexico for over 30 years by that point. Um, But, you know, the different forces that all wanted to overthrow him, you know, come from uh, different parts of the country. They have different aims. There are, um, oh, sorry, I'm hearing a little echo. You know, there are peasants who are Who've experienced severe dispossession under Diaz's rule? There are middle class people who are frustrated that they haven't been able to, you know, they have essentially no political power. There are fractions of the military who are frustrated uh, with Diaz. um, And there are also a number of international bodies who, you know, don't think that Diaz is the most suitable for foreign capital. So there's a conflagration in 1910 um, that seeks to overthrow Diaz, and this is roughly what we understand as the Mexican Revolution. Uh, And so, you know, there's both, as I tell in the book, a number of international forces that produce the conditions that lead to the Mexican Revolution. I think sometimes we... uh, can, it can can flatten the histories of revolution in other countries and we forget, for example, how influenced people were by theories of socialism, of anarchism, of pacifism, how much, you know, people were very keenly away, aware of anti-colonial and nationalist struggles, abolitionist struggles from around the world, um, and in turn, the Mexican Revolution had these uh, international resonance, and so one of the most radical documents Uh, In modern history is the 1917 Mexican Constitution, which um, not only uh, puts forth an alternative idea of property ownership that, uh, you know, property is not owned by individuals, but it's owned by the nation, but it also has these extraordinarily advanced progressive Articles about the protection of workers' rights, uh, protection of women, uh, education for children, uh, you know, things that I think, you know, the whole world continues to aspire to. So there were a number of ways in which the revolution, the documents which came out of it, the struggles that it articulated spoke to radicals around the world, uh, you know, and um, helped them articulate broader internationalist aims.
0: You're listening to Christina Heatherton. Author of the recently released Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Talking about Mexico, you write that it's both a real country and an imagined space of revolution, a crucible of internationalism for the world's rebels. You you touched on that just a moment ago, but take that deeper, that, that imagining that inspired so much.
2: Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I, I have training as a geographer, so, you know, there's a, um, there's a tripartite of space that Henri Lefebvre talks about where space is both abstract, relative, and relational, which sounds fancy, but it's just a way of saying that sometimes a place can be something as concrete as a place on a map. A place can be made meaning relative to the other places that it's close to. So, for example, you know, Mexico has a certain meaning, you know, throughout the world because of its relationship and proximity to the United States. But it can also be a place of uh, imaginaries and projections, you know, ways in which we, the ways that we think about it can often proceed and produce the ways in which we interact with the space in real life. And those things happen simultaneously, you know, all at the same time. Uh, so, you know, it's as true for a place as it is for a revolution, so, you know, the story that I tell is not just, you know, there are stories of people who were in Mexico during the revolution, like M.N. Roy, uh, you know, a a man who came from India fighting British colonialism who goes on to co-found the Mexican Communist Party, but I also tell the story of radicals who met uh, Mexican revolutionaries in the US and had to engage with a certain uh, projection of what that revolution meant so uh, you know I guess my answer would be that there were a number of ways in which people saw in the Mexican Revolution a confrontation with capital, a confrontation with U.S. imperialism, a confrontation with long lineages of colonialism. And it was through those kind of projections that, uh, you know, people were able to produce these convergences, these radical convergences within which new articulations of internationalism were produced.
0: I'm curious about what drew you in propelled you to undertake the project clearly it's a book about the past but the past is never dead right it's uh, but it's also involves a dialogue with the present um an intervention if you will but tell us how you got to it sure
2: yeah well i'll tell you two stories i'll try to make them quick The first is that um, a very long time ago, I was a part of something called the Bristol Radical History Group. Uh, And we were, uh, we were a group of teachers, can-can dancers, contractors, plumbers, you know, uh, I had had a semester of graduate school. So I was the closest to an academic and we were doing a lot of uh, events around history from below. And in, uh, I was in England during the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the British slave trade. And so there were a lot of uh, official events, you know, celebrating the, uh, you know, Abolition as if it was something William Wilberforce and these British politicians had done. And what we did is we, you know, we brought out speakers like Richard Hart, who wrote the book, The Slaves Who Abolished Slavery. We highlighted things like the Haitian Revolution. We gave walking tours, you know, to be able to show how slave owners were the ones who got reparations after the abolition of the British slave trade. And they invested that money into the the built environment, into the industries of English cities. Um, And, you know, I found out that there were there was just a great hunger for a counter history. There was a way in which the legacy of uh, slavery and abolition had deep impact into the ways communities were organized, into the way people saw themselves. And so I was really motivated by what Julia Scott calls a common wind—the sense that you know there are global struggles that can be traced along circuits of abolition. That if you know you you tell history not as just a history of you know formal wars and leaders. But you think instead about history from below. How did people who often were illiterate, how did they talk to each other? How did they convey information? How did stories about the, the Haitian revolution reach the ears of people in Ireland and Wales? So this was very much kind of like uh, the where I came out of and where my sense that history was something that was living came from. And then, uh, you know, at a certain point, I was interviewing a relative of mine I'm Japanese American. My family came from both Japan and Okinawa on my mother's side. And I was interviewing this relative about the Japanese American internment. He told me, uh, well, you know, our family came from Okinawa and a lot of us came through Mexico. My uh, father was a farm uh, labor organizer. He could speak multiple languages. And so he was targeted by the FBI in the early rounds of the internment. And my uncle said, but, you know, my father had been down there with me- in Mexico fighting with Pancho Villa, so he knew how to take care of business. And if he was going down, he was going to take them down with him. And so all of a sudden, I, I, I had this story I didn't know how to make sense of. Why would Okinawan Americans, you know, like, I, I mean, first of all, did he really fight these federal agents? But also, you know, like, what would have possessed these Okinawans, Uh, you know, to to be involved in another country's revolution? What would have accounted for the affinity between Okinawans and Mexican peasants? Uh, And so the kind of framework about radical revolutionary Atlantic history I had learned in Bristol was something I thought I could apply to uh, the U.S. And I thought maybe there was a, a history of radical internationalism that was rooted through Mexico.
0: Again, you're listening to Christina Heatherton. We're talking about, well, the impact and implications of the Mexican Revolution. We'll open the phone lines oh, in about 10 minutes at 608 256 2001 if you want to get in with a brief comment or a question for our guest. Again, right at the half hour, we'll open up the phones at 608 256 2001. I'm not certain if we're using extension nine anymore, but you could try that if you don't get in right away. I'm gonna go back and weave back into some of your basic concepts. Uh one, of course, we've touched on internationalism. Uh and I want to take that deeper what that means. We've you've touched on convergence and convergence spaces central t- to the whole discussion of the book. Let's not, but let's start with making. Right? With this process, each chapter t- begins with the making of something. The um, <clears throat> history as a process of becoming and creation, and indeed destruction and reconstruction, often enough. Talk about that making.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, I see this book in the vein of history from below or social history. And a a big touchstone for a lot of people in this tradition is E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class. So I really wanted to be deliberate with the, uh, you know, as you said, titling each chapter in the book, uh, how to make, how to make a rope, how to make a university, how to make love, how to make a dress. Um, My my particular introduction to this tradition came as much through Thompson as it did through W.E.B. Du Bois and C.L.R. James, uh, and, I, and the, why the concept of making is so important is it, it's, it foregrounds collective struggle, it foregrounds the contingency of history, it doesn't say that we're simply people upon whom power is enacted. It says that we make history and we make history through struggle. And I think once you have that framework, once you're always thinking about how things are made, you can also understand how they can be unmade. And this is both, I think, a restingly simple concept and I think something that's pretty mind-blowing that helps us understand not just history differently but ourselves in history differently.
0: Another concept you play with, uh, again, central... <clears throat> excuse me, is the new imperialism, drawing from the insights of W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, yes. That is, there's always a new imperialism. It came back into recent discourse through David Harvey uh, and others, geographer David Harvey. Um, but you tie it, of course, to Du Bois's understanding of the importance of the international color line. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Sure. Well, you know, Du Bois, I think really doesn't get the credit he's due as somebody who's thinking about capitalism and imperialism in really sophisticated ways, ways that predate some of the theorists that we, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like lean on most heavily to think about those concepts. And so Du Bois, he particularly illustrates this concept in a 1915 article called The African Roots of War. But looking through issues of the crisis, he's also thinking about these concepts in relationship to Mexico. So by the new imperialism, Du Bois is really trying to understand a new new type of imperialism coming into being in the mid to late, 19th century Uh, so you know part of how he describes it is he says you know in an earlier period the kind of bourgeois revolutions of an earlier period really got rid of the idea that the only people who had you know that there was a divine right of kings to amass wealth right and so instead you had this idea of uh, you know uh, that basically a new capitalist class could take on those same uh, rights And so Du Bois kind of describes this evolution about what appears to be, he calls a democratized despotism. You know, this idea that there's something that appears to be more egalitarian in how, uh, you know, it's not just the divine right of kings to amass wealth, but that this can ostensibly be in every man. Of course, anybody who's ever read a record of the 19th century knows not every man (laughs) amassed a lot of wealth. So, you know, Du Bois talks about a new vision of the world coming into view that proffers the idea that people can become small princelings of, of, uh, of, of, a new empire, that they can be investors. They can imagine themselves to be, you know, the, the small shareholders of empire. He says, whether or not they're actually making money and that a lot of this imaginary, a lot of the new carving up of the world uh, particularly in relationship to um, uh, the you know, partitioning of Africa. But a lot of the ways that the world is being carved out and imagined as new spaces of investment, he says, are really being uh Organized along the color line so racism becomes like it's not as if it hadn't been a project of colonial empires It certainly has but he says there's a new articulation of racism coming into being in the late 19th century That allows people to adopt the mentality of financiers and a kind of like broadened project of imperialism So, you know, I make the argument that two things come into focus with this analysis one is Mexico which becomes this prime site for U.S. investors, you know, by the outbreak of the revolution, a quarter of U.S. you know investment is in Mexico, but also U.S. Uh, hegemony, you know, comes into being, I, I argue, uh, along with Giovanni Arrighi in the same period. But it's Du Bois who's helping us understand that this is this is a new phenomenon happening in this period. We have to give it a name. We have to be able to trace it. And we have to underline how significant the color line is to making it work.
0: 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you have a question, a comment for our guest today, Christina Heatherton, author of Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. I think this is going to be a landmark book, listeners, uh, and I'm not the only one who already can see it coming. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So yeah, get in your questions in. You got to pick up this book. You got to read it because it says so much about who we are presently and our movements, etc. So again, 608-256-2001, extension nine. <clears throat> Christina Heatherton' Arise reveals how, during the period, during the period, and for decades to follow, that activists of all stripes from around the world drew from the experience of the Mexican Revolution. You retrace the stories of a number of radicals, truly internationalists, whose trajectories were impacted by the revolution. Talk about some of them. You've touched we, we've touched on some a little bit, um, but each of your chapters has a central fi- figure that you hone in on. There's Elizabeth Catland, Catlett, excuse me, the African American artist Emin Roy, who you touched upon. I want to get to uh, Ricardo Flores Magón. Uh, but but there's others that are just marvelous that you you've excavated from from a, uh, a seemingly dead past, uh, such as um, Paul Shinsaykoshi, the Okinawan migrant organizer, uh, and of course, I never knew that the Bolshevik feminist Alexandra Kalantai was in Mexico. Who knew, who knew? Who knew? Um, <clears throat> and even further into toward, toward the present, Dorothy he- Healy the renowned uh uh orga- southern california organizer communist party member and and so on all of them impacted by the revolution i want to i want to touch on certainly any of those you could any you can p- pull from the hat uh but i um i've always long been fascinated by alexandra Calante and maybe you could talk a moment about her
2: sure well, the story of Kalanti is so fascinating. And it was, a you know, really a, a small detail, I think I had read, and sort of filed away in my head, and then sort of realized, again, how significant it was. Kalanti, uh, you know, in the chapter, I think about this brief period where she served as the ambassador to Mexico from the Soviet Union. Uh, and, um, Kalantai, you know, she, the same year, 1926, when she started uh, uh, that ambassadorship, she had drafted a memoir called, uh, where she described herself as a sexually emancipated communist woman. So, you know, she's a woman quite ahead of her time. She was a feminist theorist and organizer. She was one of the first women to ever hold a major state cabinet position. Uh, Lenin appointed her the Commissar of Social Welfare. Um, And the reason I'm so interested in her was, I mean, for two reasons. I think she was quite far ahead of her time for her uh, engagement with gender and sexuality, her sense that unless a revolution dealt uh, foundationally Uh, troubled its ideas about the nuclear family, about social organization, about, you know, just gender and and sexuality as it's organized under capitalism, unless there was a revolution in that there could not be a revolution. Um, uh, But I I think she's also an interesting figure because uh, she was someone who had to confront the difficulties of putting theory into practice, you know, and I think, I try to talk a little bit about what it meant for her as somebody who tried to both imagine what a new Soviet, uh, you know, what, what the new Soviet Union would look like, how those ideas of revolutionizing gender and the social organization of society would look like, you know, against like some concretized sexism and homophobia and, you know, entrenched beliefs about, uh, you know, gendered hierarchies in particular. And so there's something fascinating about this woman who's a revolutionary who's been quite humbled by the time she comes to mexico by by you know some of the uh uh pushback she's faced um and she encounters a a revolutionary state that's trying to make similar moves right what do you deal you know how do you deal in a country that's just been ravaged by civil war and revolution how do you deal with the children how do you deal with the orphans, you know, people who are suddenly orphaned? How do you deal with suddenly a huge mass of people who become disabled because of war? Like how does how is the state prioritizing the, the total disorganization of society and how is it imagining something different? So there's a lot of different reasons that I wanted to focus on Kalanti, but I thought her engagement with feminists around the world that were foundational to her own thinking, to the kind of conversation she has in Mexico with Mexican feminists, was just a really cool convergence space that I hadn't realized until I started looking through her diplomatic record.
0: Let's go on to Ricardo Flores Mangón, uh, that is this <clears throat> hero of the Mexican Revolution. Who ends up in a penitentiary in the United States, um, who saw the Mexican people as a revolutionary force. What happened to him when he went to Leavenworth Penitentiary? You touched on it um, a little bit before, but the story of the radical university within the walls of Leavenworth at a time when it was filled with uh, political prisoners. Maybe what? two thousand of them at some point um, mm-hmm. talk about talk about Magon and you know, maybe give a little background on him, but uh, but that what they created in within Leavenworth, yeah.
2: well, Ricardo Flores Magon is such an interesting figure. And just to kind of give you a sense of how important he is in Mexico and Mexican history, this is the centennial of his death. Uh, He died a hundred years ago in Kansas, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, And so the Mexican government has declared this the year of Ricardo Flores Magón. What's so interesting is uh, because of some new revelations, uh, particularly about the disappearance of 43 students from Ayotzinapa and the state's involvement in that, there's also been, at the same time, parents and students who have been organizing against the government who have organized under the name the Ricardo Flores Magón committee. So you have both the state claiming Magón as this revolutionary hero, and you also still have the memory of Magón as a revolutionary that still inspires people who are trying to fight for justice against the state. So Ricardo Flores Magón was uh, an anarchist, an agitator, an organizer. Um, He was a leader in something called the Partido Liberal Mexicano, the PLM. He published a magazine called Regeneración. He did this on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. He spent a fair amount of time in the U.S. in uh, towns like St. Louis, uh, a significant amount of time in Los Angeles, and as I talk about in the book, uh, in Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas. So in World War I, uh, there were a new set of federal legislation uh, passed, including the Espionage and Sedition Act, uh, which just you know, criminalized political dissent uh, and particularly opposition to the war. So you have this incredible situation where anybody who is organizing against anything, you know, uh, communists, anarchists, pacifists, uh, revolutionary nationalists, and Mexican revolutionaries were all caught up in the sway of uh, these new federal legislations, and they were all incarcerated together in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. So, you know, in going both to uh, records in Mexico and to records of the National Archive in the Central Plains region, where all these prisoners records are kept... I found that not only were they talking to each other, but they were organizing with each other. And what happens when people organize with each other is they usually end up educating each other. So the federal government actually had such a problem with prisoners getting arrested, sent to Leavenworth, and coming out as organizers that they had to say, what the heck is happening? They're the ones who called Leavenworth Penitentiary a university of radicalism. And in the book, I tell the story about how there was actually a school. The prisoners organized, uh, self-organized their own university. They drew the instructors from among the ranks of the prisoners. They taught each other history. They taught each other language. They taught each other political theories. And they all saw this as a necessary prerequisite to organize with one another. And I tell the story of, you know, articles they wrote in a prison newspaper, books they passed amongst each other, but ways in which they were really all trying to make sense of the different struggles they came from in order to figure out how they could exist together, how they could organize together, how they could all imagine a new world together.
0: A marvelous example of the breaking down of what we call today the silos.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: It's also a marvelous example, perhaps the best in your book of this whole notion of convergence space, of radi- convergence space of radical international traditions that, you know, our movements today are so fragmented. Uh, whatever whatever your affiliation, whatever your belief system, you, you talk with to each other but not outside of the group, <laughs> not outside of the sector, not outside of the silo. Um, so again, at that level, the, this book is so important of, hey, people did it before, learned, figured it out, uh, we can do the same.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the, the book's called Arise, and it's a kind of ballsy thing to do because there have been, you know, it takes its name from the first word of the Internationale. Arise uh, Ye Prisoners of Starvation, Arise Ye Wretched of the Earth. And you know, people forget that the, that second lyric, Wretched of the Earth, is where Franz Fanon gets the title of his famous book. And there's actually a, a long tradition of people going back to the lyrics of the international, you know, not just to title books, but also to think about the legacy of internationalism in their present moment, you know. Uh, Dorothy Healy, I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, she was a communist organizer in Southern California, quite a formidable presence, Uh, also uh, had her own radio show for a very long time. Um, And when she left the Communist Party, she told Maurice Isherman that if she ever wrote a memoir, she'd want to call it Traditions Chains Have Bound Us, which is a slight adaptation of the lyric which goes, no more Traditions Chains Have Bound Us, uh, because she said, you know, Unless a revolutionary tradition is constantly interrogating itself, constantly kept alive with that, you know, critical spirit, it's no longer a revolutionary tradition. It's kind of, you know, fallen into dogma. And uh, you know, I continue to think that this is a really important insight and that we have to be reminded, you know, of the struggles that came before us, but in order to make sense of the struggles before us. Uh, So that's, you know, this is my small contribution.
0: Again, 608 256 2001, extension 9. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, Christina Heatherton, give us a call. Come on, folks, you must be thinking about some of the things we're touching on here. Give us a call at 608 256 2001, extension number 9. The legacies and influence of the Mexican revolutionary tradition continued to play out in successive decades especially in El Norte, as generations of those schooled in the revolution migrated to the southwest to rural and urban Southern California during the Great Depression, a complex history. One of the things that this book opened my eyes to was, you know, we take on the ideology of the man. That is, oh, it must be white North American organizers that are doing this stuff. Uh, and and of course there had to be people with the popular memory of the re- revolutionary experience in Mexico that made their way n- north for various reasons economic social political uh that also were working in the fields and the factories and uh, the unemployment councils and so on so talk about that that, that the, the you you just touched on it actually that popular memory you know it's not that long a time from 1910 to 1931 you know, <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm so grateful for the work in oral histories of uh, the people like Deborah Weber have done. She has an incredible book called Dark Sweat, White Gold, where she actually interviews a lot of farm workers who are part of uh, some of the big San Joaquin Valley uh, industrial strikes. And, you know, what her research shows is that, you know, not only was there a living memory of the Mexican Revolution, but in strike camps, you know, there were unofficial streets named after revolutionary heroes of the, uh, you know, of the Mexican Revolution, that there are ways in which people kind of trans transposed you know whatever rank they had in in fighting to strike committees and that people she says you know had to resolve a lot of antagonisms that you know they weren't always on the same side in mexico but you know if they're in the middle of a strike they found ways to uh make meaning with each other so you know i tell this story about dorothy healy who uh was a very young organizer she's 19 years old and she's organizing um Unemployed workers in Los Angeles. And uh, I think people forget sometimes that before there was a new deal, you know, there are conditions very similar to now. Mass unemployment, mass starvation, mass just, you know, uh, desperate conditions, mass homelessness too. You know, like the LA Times uh, in the early 30s, I found this ridiculous op-ed where they recommended that uh, homeless people shoot pigeons for sustenance. People are just in total desperate straits. Um, And so the unemployed councils were this very important uh, moment where unemployed workers organized and among the people who put it, you know, who, who, who structured that were communist organizers like Dorothy Healy, who did that in Los Angeles. Now, what's so interesting is that. Sheely uh, also went to the Imperial Valley, which is on the U.S.-Mexico border, it's south of Los Angeles, to help striking lettuce workers uh, there. And um, what she found was she tells this story, uh, you know, in 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 her oral history about how she's all fired up. She thinks she's going to talk to some workers, explain to them what a strike is, you know, like what, what radical politics are. And she says she's met with really patient indulgence. You know, these workers are kind of sitting there. They've got their arms crossed. They're nodding their head. And when she's done with her presentation, she's they say, look, we've been through a revolution, you know, like we know what we're doing. It's just... Just when you're ready to get on the barricades, let us know and we'll be there. <laughs> and so she talks about what it meant, uh, you know, how Mexican workers drew on that legacy and experience of the Mexican Revolution, how it was a critical part of the strike. And it, and it should be remembered, too, that the Imperial Valley, where I mentioned my my relatives are from, you know, it was it was black. It was white it was south asian there if you go into the 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 graveyard of the imperial valley you'll find like the whole world represented there so you know this was a global struggle you know on the u.s mexico border and the 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 vibrant memory of the mexican revolution was a huge galvanizing force um, that you know someone like dorothy healy had to encounter and was totally inspired by
0: our engineer Chuck tells us that we have a caller with a question or comment. Uh, Steve, hi, you're on the air.
1: Yeah, Alan, uh, best wishes to you and for Miss Heatherton. Heretofore, I thought that the Mexican Revolution was one of peasant pitchforkers devoid of intellectuals. Uh, I tuned in late. Is Ricardo Flores Megan uh, that exception and their greatest representative? I'd like to hear. Anything more about uh, the intellectual origins of the Mexican Revolution and his biography? And thank you.
2: Sure. Um, well, you know, let, let's start with some kind of key intellectuals, uh, intellectual radicals in this country. John Reed, for example, who's most famous. Well, could potentially be most famous right now because he was played by Warren Beatty in the movie Reds. But, uh, you know, he's probably most well known in this country for writing the 10 days that shook the world about the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, But that wasn't his first book. John Reed cut his teeth in Mexico during the revolution, and he did what a lot of radicals in the U.S. did at that time. There was a huge enchantment with the Mexican Revolution and its revolutionary politics. Reed thought that the proposals for land redistribution uh, being put forward by people like Emiliano Zapata, who, yes, was a peasant leader, but who also had a very keen sense of himself in the world as a revolutionary, John Reed thought that this was the model of socialism for the whole world, and there were radicals in the U.S. There are radicals that I talk about in the book, uh, you know, from around the world who looked to Mexico. I mean, understand the Mexican Revolution happens in 1910, the Bolshevik Revolution happens in 1917. So there's an advance of seven years where the ways in which Mexican people are organizing to, um, you know, overthrow the existing property structure, like these are extremely radical demands. And, you know, I mean, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the Maximilian Alvarez, uh, who Uh, has written an interesting dissertation where he thinks about the different revolutionary currents that inspired somebody like Ricardo Flores Magón, you know, that there were huge debates about uh, French anarchism and, and Russian anarchism. It's not as if, you know, people in Mexico didn't read books, didn't organize, didn't, you know, have port cities where they had workers coming in from all parts of the world. Uh, You know, and so there were currents of revolution, as I mentioned, you know, I mean, the the currents of revolution that go back to abolition were deeply entrenched in, uh, you know, Mexican people's struggles against Spanish colonialism, you know, before 1810. So, you know, there's an extraordinary revolutionary ferment that people like Ricardo Flores Magón come out of. Um, But we have to, you know, understand it's not as if they come into the world, they're a part of the world, they're a part of our revolutionary imaginary. I think the book, as Cedric Robinson talks about in Black Marxism, it doesn't, you know, produce a tradition, it names something that's already there. And I think contributions of Mexican people has been severely overlooked to the way we understand revolutionary thought in this country.
0: We have one more caller waiting to come on. Uh, I believe it's David. Hi, you're on the air.
1: Uh, first of all, Ellen, my condolences for uh, Pat. Um, oh, thank you, David. My comment is, um, or my question, rather, is, you know, after Pancho Villa destroyed where his army at Zacatecas, and he, he marches to Mexico City, and Zapata is coming up from the south, and there's that famous meeting of the two of them in Mexico City, and then there was a very strong labor movement, as you have mentioned the uh, the- the question that always i think people on the radical left have to ask is um how how come there was a failure to form a, a you know um a solid revolutionary government uh you know and as a result of that uh the the- you karanda's know, followers and later uh obergon uh who defeated via um, thank you david. You know, to, to appropriate the Mexican Revolution. Thank, thank you both. Bye.
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think David makes an important point about. You know, what happened to this revolution? My argument is not that the Mexican Revolution, you know, transformed all capitalist property relations, you know, overthrew everything that was tyrannical. You know, I mean, in fact, the Mexican Revolution, as people like Adolfo Agile have said, became frozen in the PRI, you know, the institutionalized revolutionary party. Uh, And I mean, it's like any struggle in the United States. We don't study revolutionary history because you know it's a fairy tale and everybody lived happily ever after but sometimes like Walter Benjamin says we have to you know think about uh the flashes that you know the 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 revolution the, the moments that flash up in our history that we can seize upon in moments of danger you know we can think about how how people imagine things differently how people fought for things to be differently even if they become totally incorporated by the state, even if they didn't totally achieve their aims. But I think it's a way, I mean, it goes back to the question you asked me earlier about the making. Like, we have to understand ourselves in a long tradition of people trying to make this world a better place. And and just because things didn't, Completely transformed before does not mean that they can't transform in the future But there's a big difference between understanding history is dead and those chapters closed versus understanding them is open and something that we have a responsibility to continue
0: You know uh, that's related to a phrase you use in your conclusion, which is called how to make history uh, And that is you talk about that. It's a book against impossibility You just touched on that um <clears throat> but let's talk about how to make history, who makes history. Uh, and it gets to the, to, the, to the nub really of what this book is about. And, and again, as I've already said, why it should be read by people hoping for and working toward change.
2: Well, you know, the, the books, the, the final chapter is kind of a play on Du Bois's black reconstruction. His final chapter which is called the propaganda of history. And it, the, that book does something so interesting because, you know, Du Bois re-narrates the whole history of Reconstruction out from a totally white supremacist and Southern revanchist narrative to be able to say, how do we understand black people as not some, yeah, as, as not people for whom you know freedom was granted, but something that they struggled for, that they won for themselves. So he retells the whole history of uh reconstruction and abolition of. Uh, uh, the, the You know, emancipation, I should say. Uh, and then the last chapter, he talks about a classroom. He, you know, he was writing against the Dunning School that was situated at Columbia University, where a lot of this racist historiography was based and he's thinking a lot about you know what gets taught to people how is history taught how are these ideas about the world reproduced and this was really deep for me because i was working on the same campus of columbia university i was a professor at barnard college and i had to confront you know how similar ideas were being reproduced and so you know the the last chapter how to make history is a real interrogation of like i said before how do we understand history as open versus closed how do we confront the enormous uh, task before us to understand it as something that we are still making today. So that's that's where that title comes from, and, and, and that's what I try to articulate there.
0: In that chapter, you also say that it is not by moral outrage alone that people have lent their lives to the struggle for better worlds, neither is it by the purity of instructions from theory. There is certainly no royal road; only the one made by walking. The books, a, this book is an attempt to map some of the movement in the hope of making future roads possible. Um, you know, I haven't even said a word about your writing, and I apologize for that, because I've I've told some people who know this stuff, who are well read and well versed in in our history, um, that I, I said Christina Heatherton is writing of inequality and, and kind of writing up there with Du Bois, up there with CLR James and you're shaking your head no, but I, I, others have, have agreed with me who've looked at the book. I think Robin Kelly uh, sensed it when in, in his little preface or, or the thing you sent me. So I want to congratulate you on that. But I want you to expound a little bit that is you say history is not a guide but a map drawn in the stars of past lights. Out of the prison of the present is recognition. We have been warmed by other fires that we have not built. What warmth and light shall be shall we leave behind? So it's not, again, it's a look to the past to look to the future. And so, you know, I get a little choked up.
2: Let me just say I, uh, I i'm I'm gonna call my publisher today and have him <laughs> ask you to record the whole book. That was such a beautiful reading. <laughs> I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, well, if it pays, I'm there.
2: <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, what can I say? The world's on fire. You know, the world's on fire in every which way, and I think that there's a lot of easy answers before us, and they're the same easy answers that lead to some of the most reactionary beliefs. You know, there are easy answers about who's the enemy, uh, you know, who's causing all our problems, uh, you know, the explosion of racist nationalist violence, white supremacist violence in this country, but racist nationalist violence around the world that takes on different characters in different places. You know, I think a lot of this comes from people feeling totally unstable, totally unsure of what comes next and reaching for the easy answers before them. So we have to be brave. You know, we have to be braver brave enough to avoid the seductions of easy racist answers that might make us feel good in the immediate sense but totally impair our ability to fight for like to save you know for to even imagine that there's a world beyond this one so you know i mean the book is an attempt to say that people have been able to overcome differences that we have not just sought the easy answers that it's difficult that there are enormous interests invested in making us feel weak in making us feel divided in making us feel helpless but that there's as strong a current uh of people imagining something different and we have to recover it if we want to survive and and we should
0: you know you've uh, again you've done a marvelous job in making history live you know um what's that faulkner line that, that, that the past isn't isn't dead it hasn't it isn't even it's past
2: even yeah
0: you know <laughs> i uh you know here we are we we have a little bit of time left and we've touched on so much already but what what else any any concluding i don't know what can top your <laughs> remarks just now but uh anything that oh, yeah, we should have talked about, or what about, you know, I'm wondering if you have anything further.
2: (laughs) Well, um, boy, oh, boy, I, you know, I guess I'll just say this, that I have been so moved by the way young people have taken up the book. You know, some have gotten really emotional. And, you know, I I wish I could say it was just because of something I gave. I think it's just, like, I, I feel like I have to kind of open back up what was shown to me which is that there's an extraordinary and impossible seeming world of struggle that, you know, uh, in the same way I talk about in the beginning, you know, the opening chapter is how to make a rope. And I think about the composites of 20th century Lynch rope, early 20th century Lynch rope, you know, strands came from the Philippines, strands came from Southern Mexico, strands came from Jim Crow sharecropping regimes in the United States. So you have, you know, all these regimes of of accumulation and all these tyrannical racist regimes tied together, producing this instrument of racist tyranny, but also in unbraiding those strands, You come to see how people connected, struggles against U.S. imperialism in the Philippines, struggles against U.S. capital in southern Mexico, you know, struggles against racism and Jim Crow in this country. You see how the world has also been tied together in struggle. And I think this is such a rich history that should stiffen all of our spines, give us so much confidence that we can can see we can understand our fates as linked to people around the world who we may not ever see. But if we don't develop that kind of global consciousness, you know, I don't know what comes next. But it's available to us, uh, and I feel like it's something we have to do.
0: So I'll ask the question I always ask when I have some time. What's in the hopper? What do you want to do? What's next?
2: Well, all right. I, this, is a, this is a public affair exclusive. So one thing I didn't get into this book was uh, Alan Pinkerton. There's extraordinary ways in which he imagined internationalism, you know, from the kind of paranoid anxiety of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, the kind of prototype of the national surveillance state. Uh, you know, he saw things like the uh, 1877 railroad strike as being a product of uh, the Paris Commune okay. of uh you know, like German socialism. So I think there's a really extraordinary story to tell about internationalism from the perspective of Alan Pinkerton. And so that's the next project.
0: Yeah, he was a. Uh, well, the Pinkerton agency's still around. They they don't go away. Right. So, right. Well, we're right down to right down to it here. I, I want to thank you, Christina Heatherton, ever so much, so much, uh, for. Being with us this hour for Arise, the global radicalism in the era of the Mexican Revolution from University of California Press. I want to thank you, our callers, our listeners. I want to thank Chuck Engineering, Jade helping with production, Shali as always. And it's good being back. And uh, Thanksgiving, the annual fireside chat with uh, my dear friend, Will Williams, Talking to you next week. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Divin directly common never pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported. And never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. <moulled> we come and listen and supported, it. direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. <moulled> we come and listen and supported, live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. <moulled> We come and listen and supported
1: Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental
0: level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the